Hello, everybody. Welcome to a spotlight here. I'm I'm so humbled to be with Paul Priestman. Hello, Paul. How are we? Hey, hi, everybody. Hi, hi. Now, Paul, whereabouts in the world do we find you? I'm in London today. Uh, rainy London. And I think today is the first day, first day of Clerkenwell or second day of Clerkenwell Design Week. It is. Yes, it is. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a, a busy time. It's going to be a very busy time now. You're in the in transition, aren't you? You've um, you've left the chair at Priestman Good, and you're in the middle before you tell the world what the next huge chapter of your life is, which is a very special moment. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, you know, I, we successfully transitioned Priestman Good into an employee-owned company, which I'm very proud of. So the success of Priestman Good is shared with everybody within the company, and. Um, I felt it was time, and, and it was my plan to wean it, wean itself off me. <laughs> and uh, I, um, I, I planned. I've always planned to do something new, and um, I'm pretty so in such a great position now. And um, I, I think you know many more people should think about you know what they want to do in their future lives. And and um, I've had this opportunity to make a clean break and start something new. And what's interesting is that I. You know, when I set up Priestman Good so many years ago, you know, my driving force was was different. You know, I needed money. I wanted fame, you know, things like that. And um, now I have a completely different um, set of requirements. And it's really interesting. And I think more people should appreciate that and do it. So let's dig in quickly. What are the difference of the requirements now? If, if you say five, ten years time, it was a huge success because what, what's driving you? Well, I think, you know, the, 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 the creative world has changed so much um, and it's much more to do with problem solving. And also um, what I've, I've learned and I've been able to do over the more recently in my career is, is to be sitting on the sort of the top table of CEOs and, and of top organizations. And that's where design needs to be, because those are the people that make the decisions. And I think it's absolutely critical that, that those CEOs who, who, who all know that they need design, how they, how they use it. Um, because I think they know how they know they need it, but they don't know how to use it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the role that, that I'm beginning to play. So I want to help the viewers here. Um, uh, we did a, a podcast series before the pandemic. I think it was in 2019. It feels like a million years ago. Um, and, but uh, we did a series which was called Design in the Boardroom. And we went out and we spoke about how the different shape of design as it is in a boardroom as against the studio. And I think a lot of designers feel that they want to go bring some of the studio language and nuance into the boardroom where the boards need big directions, they need strategy, they need to deal with risk, they need to talk about leverage, they need to say, are we staying irrelevant or are we going to become irrelevant? You know, these are, these are very different conversations, aren't they, to aesthetics and style and design for manufacture. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to accept as a designer that the, the people you're talking to have no interest in design and really don't understand design. And I think certainly in some of the roles, like the, when I headed up the internal environment at the Heathrow's Terminal 5, um, the language you have to use at that point, you have to put forward suggestions that everybody gets and everybody understands. And it's it's not good enough for a designer to say, I'm doing it like this because I like that. Okay, so I'm gonna hit, a, uh, I'm gonna dig in there a little bit. So what you're talking about is a certain degree of pragmatism rather than dogma. And, and, and boardrooms and executive types love pragmatism. They're a little bit reluctant when somebody comes dogmatic about something, aren't they? 
they are and and i think you have to you have to talk in 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 a in a slightly different language but also you have to come up with ideas that are problem solving that have some logic to it um that it, that that relates to a different world of maybe finance and and engineering and and it you know design has got to be very careful that it doesn't seem as this sort of stuff that you can scatter over something like design dust and, you know after all the serious work's done you know yeah. that's not design is embedded right from the beginning and that's when it's successful so i'm going to i'm going to talk about people who have great depth in design culture, which means that the executive class of the organization understand that design can help them to accelerate to a better future faster, that it's the most proven reliable methodology for, for massive transformation. That's part of the culture. And the people who think that you can put the fairy dust on are probably coming more from advertising and marketing and think that's design because it's got artwork. But that's more the convinced society rather than the soul society. If you're going to solve something, it's got to be deep and embedded in the cultural roots of the project, not something yeah. you apply later on. So that's a been a big transition because I know when I started Driven by Design uh, before we became Better Future, most of the people we were talking to were coming from a marketing branding perspective and they were driving the design innovation programs. Now the role of marketing communications is to support the transformative design innovation that's taking place, not to drive it. And I think that's interesting to see them working collaboratively rather than being um, subordinate and dominant to each other. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, I'll give an example. I mean, we were working with a, an airframe manufacturer, manufacturer of aircraft, um, and the department we were working for is called Payload. Payload is people. People. <laughs> now, you know, and, and the engineers seen it as that, it's purely that. Now, where does design sit within that? They know that, that some other of their competitors are doing quite well in certain areas, so they want a bit of design. But, you know, that is the sort of the, the, the language you need to sort of tackle and understand. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, I mean, I find that really interesting and I find it a challenge and I know I can do that. I know that, that I, you, I can help them make the right decisions. And that, that's what I find really interesting. Yeah, so one thing I want to go and dig into here is because you've got expertise from very micro mobility and transport in the scooter project that you went and did. And if I'm not wrong, that was part of your London Design Festival medal that you got was the scooter. Yes, it was. It was part of the Design Museum um, mm -hmm. exhibition on New Old, which is really exploring the, the, the that whole realm of the ageing population. And I'm actually chairing the design advisory panel for the Design Age Institute, which is a, a, a an institute here in, in the UK, looking exactly at the demographic of, of and, and positively looking at that change in society, because every society is, is going through that, that you know, the, the classic pyramid where you had lots of young people at the bottom and, and mm -hmm. old people at the top, it's now gone more more like a classic building in London called the Gherkin. Um, yeah. So you've got little, <laughs> you've got some fewer young people at the bottom, you've got a middle-aged spread, but then you've got a lot of elderly people at the top. What are we gonna do about that? And, and so you've got these micro transportation vehicles in the form of the yeah. scooter. You've then got up to um, large airplanes like the A380 cabin designs that you've got yeah, and yeah. done, but also, um, mass transit in the form of trains that I've seen that uh, been, that are in Hong Kong, the high-speed trains that you've done throughout throughout China. So I'm interested because there's there's a very different context between somebody trying to move at 
five to 10 kilometers an hour and somebody trying to move at five, well, I'll mention Hyperloop, a thousand kilometers an hour. So, you know, and, and that must be interesting to get your head around the different comfort factors that happen when you're on a personal scooter versus when you're sitting in a cabin, which is meant to propel you to the other side of the world quickly. Yeah, and, and I think there, there's, so, I mean, it's a massive subject, this, but um, I think interchange is absolutely critical. You know, when you're building a, a railway system, um, you know, traditionally you, you end up, you get the station and then you get car park and taxi rank around the outside. Now that's gone um, because people aren't using those, it's, it's different modes. So um, you're, you're thinking about other ways of, of integrating that. So that there's multimodal. And the fact that, you know, to encourage people to, to, to leave their cars and use other forms of public transport, they, it has to be better. Um, and, and that's, so uh, there are so many sort of interchange issues that we have to look at, um, but also thinking long-term um, and public transport, that's what I find fantastic about, about public transport. Um, it's not a disposable product design world. Um, of the three-year cycle, we're looking at things that are going to be in, in operation for 30, 40 years. So how do you design for that? It has to be modular. You have to think ahead. And also from a design point of view, it can't be too radical in some respects because it doesn't want to date. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a, fasc- a fascinating area to work in. Yeah, so I want to take you in then a little bit about the solve side that we were talking about from design. We're, we've got a model that we turn around we talk about the... Design can either be mild, which might take a step into the future. It can be wild and takes a leap into the future. And you're talking there about you can't do things too radical that they because you know they, you don't want them to date. You also don't want them to bounce on the public. How do you how do you go the leap without actually bouncing or disrupting people too much? Because that's that's a big challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in, and, and this, is, this is part of my new, new venture, is public engagement. Um, and I think design has a, and, and looking into the future, bringing things to life, and then allowing public engagement. So if a country or city is making a massive investment into a new transport system or upgrade to their existing infrastructure, um, how do you bring the public along with that? Because you know that it might face lots of disruption, there's going to be lots of expenditure. So to, to bring it to life. And so the, the way that we would do that is that we, we offer options and let the public make decisions. And maybe within those options for a new tram or bus or, or train, there is a sort of a, you're radical, you're more radical and you're really, wow, isn't that amazing? Um, and, then, and then let a public decision sort of come through. And, and by that, then people um, begin to get on board and own the... the uh, the, the, the whole subject because the great thing about public transport is it is part of the society mm. um, that's what I really do love about this is, is that you're, you're, you're creating the character like the new tube for London or um, you know the Hong Kong metros or the new trains for, for um, Canada or, or, or for Austra, Austra, uh, Austria um, you know I, I think you're, you're creating something which embodies a culture. So it's a fascinating area of design to sort of encapsulate somehow that, that, um, that look and feel of a country. And, and recently I was uh, talking with one of the chief rail architects uh, in one of the great world cities. I won't name who he is, because I think what I'm about to say may be not fully disclosed. But he was talking about a station that he's building, which, which is a um, zero carbon station. 
which is, which is fantastic. And then I asked him, well, when's that coming on, on, on stream? And when's it online? And the dwell period is something like eight to 10 years. We, we forget how long it takes for the, for the buildings of transport networks to come around. And I look at the work that Grimshaw are doing at Newark Airport, you know, that's been going on for quite some period of time. I look at you know, a whole range of, even if you go look at, um, at uh, the, the work that uh, Grimshaw went and did on the stations in London, you know, uh, 10 years building a station while the station's still going. So that takes a, a long time, but some of the micro interventions that you can do to help bring that, that journey along and solve as people are going through the life cycle of either rolling stock or stations is very important to do as well. So how do you refer to things which actually have that longitudinal delay and, and dwell time versus the things that you can affect immediately? Is there, a, is there a simple language to put behind the difference between the two? Well, I mean, I think in design, you, you, have, to, you have to think about, you have to pragmatically think about that mm -hmm. uh, and, think, and think in a modular way. And certainly, um, when we have been involved in design of stations and airports, um, one of the ways you can look at that is the things that will always be there and things that will change. So, for instance, you know, if you have a, um, if you put up a, a lamppost somewhere, things will be attached to it. <laughs> there will be cameras, there will be signs, there will be instantly something, you know. Um, but those are transit, they're, they're sort of, they're transient. But the, the certain elements will always be there. So if you accept that, and then uh, as we've done in airports where you, you, you create bands where technology can come and go, but it doesn't affect the structure of the building and it doesn't ruin the look and feel of the, of the space. Um, so I think you, have, you can't be in denial, you have to accept that these things happen. Um, and uh, you designed for that. So that the way you do that is to, is to really think about how you can fundamentally change the look and feel of something, but the structure stays the same, which is the ultimate in reuse and recycling. Now, I'm going to actually just see if I can get a, an immediate response out from you on something. If I said it would be a better future when, what would be your immediate answer? What comes to mind first? Well, it's happening now, absolutely now. Well, it would be a better future when. What, what, what in particular? Well, I, th I, I mean, I, I see it because I am having to think such long term and, 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 and some of the projects are, are sort of five to 10 years ahead and they're, they're in my head now. Um, I know when they're going to be arriving. Um, so I, I think it is happening now because people like me, I have to think like that. It's in my head right now. I'm working on it um, and I am working on the future, which is going to be around in five, 10 years time. And on the weekend, we had a, a, a national government election here in Australia. And yep. it could have been that we either stayed with the status quo, which was climate denying, let's go and actually keep our fossil fuels going as long as we can, even opening up new coal mines. Yeah. Or the government that's come in is actually got a platform which says, well, we want to get to the future faster. We want to be more progressive. But then there's a whole bunch of independent parliamentarians that will drive that and accelerate that platform that the government had. So I think we're on the dawn of almost the frustration that's been around about getting to the future faster for the last 15 odd years is going to be unleashed. And I, and I wouldn't be surprised to go see that happen in other, other countries yes. 
other markets in the world. So I think we, we are seeing people who are well-meaning, well-considered uh, well about how to get to the future faster. I think we're all locked and loaded and we're waiting for the environment to be right to, to go let us get there as fast as we can. Now, before we finish, is there anything that I've skipped over that you're saying before you go, Mark, I'd love to just mention this, or we've been able to get through as much as you can disclose before you come out as the new Paul Priestman Incorporate? <laughs> no, I think, I mean, going back to your last point, I, I, I do think that the, the, the time is ticking and um, everyone realises we urgently have to do about something about um, the environment and the way that we, in effect, use the planet um, and how we co-live with it. And um, I think that the pressure is, is on with all governments to do something about this and urgently. And, and I, I suppose the final point I'd say is that, that of course, we, we can't just sit back and let the government sort it out for us. It's down to us. Absolutely. Um, because, you know, it's up to us to do something about it because it's our choice. And I think if we can start to make the right choices and then start to lead markets, then companies will follow because they have to follow the money. So if we choose to stop doing something which is damaging the planet, then it will stop. And I think we just need to we need to make those difficult decisions. Now, I know you, you've kind of segued in there about that we have to do things. And uh, well, viewers, Paul and I have had a conversation about this before. We're going to get you back in one of our innovation labs where we go get a bunch of masterful designers to show when you're given some hairy questions, how do you consider what the unknowns are to start the briefing process, to start the design investigation so that we can work out what we need to know so that we can resolve and solve things but um it, it it leads in perfectly like we can have this conversation here but it's the actions that we take and the knowledge that we propel forward and how we do it as collegiately as possible i think that's where we get to the future faster so paul i'm going to wrap up here thank you so much for your time i, I wish i could actually share with people what you're doing don't worry he hasn't even told me like you nobody will trust me with that sort of information but i look forward as as it goes forward i look forward to see you in one of our innovation labs thanks for your time. thanks so much martin thanks everybody